0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: So glad you are with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've made it to the end of the work week. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And the crazy is a real twist. And uh, we're pretty excited to get to that one today. But let's start with the good and Jim, just yesterday we were talking about how we were encouraged that first-time jobless rates were lower than expected. There's still over a million uh, as of uh, the week ending August 1st, which is not good, but uh, it's certainly better than we were back in the early stages of the pandemic. But uh, I threw some cold water on it yesterday by saying, you know, the private sector jobs report for July was looking pretty meager, so don't get your hopes up for Friday's July jobs report from the Department of Labor. Well. I was wrong. The jobs report from the Department of Labor actually beat expectations. 1.763 million new jobs created in July. The expectation was just under one and a half million. That's 9.3 million workers either newly hired back or back to their old jobs. The total employment level remained 12.9 million below the February level, which is what all the liberal media outlets are focusing on today. Well, it's great you got your 9 million jobs back, but you know, there's still 13 million out there that haven't come back. Jim, uh, we know that uh, it isn't necessarily going to stay at this pace. A lot of experts, seems like a lot of investors are skittish about what this is going to look like if there's not a new stimulus bill soon, and we're Nowhere close to anything on that, and certainly not anything conservatives would probably like. But still, beating expectations. We'll take it. That's a good martini.
0: That's a really good way of summarizing it, Greg, because look, um, the, the initial reports or the you know, expectation of the consensus of economists was not great. You know, we'd seen, we figured, the, okay, you're going to reopen some of the economy, you're going to have this big surge back to work, but there are still a bunch of businesses that went out of business that uh, shut their doors and that aren't going to be coming back. And you kind of wonder about all those people, whether it was, you know, waiters and waitresses, bartenders, people who worked at movie theaters, cruise lines, airlines, hotels, basically anything related to tourism, um, you know, they're, they're economically still hurting. And so the expectation was, this is not going to be that great. At some point, the recovery is going to slow down. We talked in the past about the reverse square root uh, recovery, which is not um, uh, its not as much math as it sounds like. Basically, just the gist is that uh, you'd get something of a bounce after a steep drop, and then it would kind of just go flat. Um, so I went at this, and I was like, oh, you know, okay, this is, this is pretty darn good. And I saw this, I got this response from this economist um, who said, well, we have to recover 2.5, 2.8 million jobs to recover the jobs lost due to COVID-19 by the end of the year. Greg, have you heard anyone say, we're going to be back to where we were before the pandemic by the end of the year? No. Like I, they, I, I, cause I inquired of this economist, like, did, did Trump say that? That sounds like the sort of thing Trump would say. Like Trump is always saying, Oh, you know, it's going to be terrific tomorrow. Um, but I hadn't even remembered him saying that most people recognize that the kind of economic, uh, uh, free fall that you had when you suddenly had to shut down vast swaths of the US economy, um, that it was not going to come back. We're hoping is okay, we're in positive territory. and Maybe sometime next year we get back to our pre pandemic levels. And the idea that, oh, we'll be back by December, well, look, I don't, you know, barring some miracle, I don't think the pandemic is over by December. So I wouldn't expect us to be at that. So I said, where did you get this idea? And I've not gotten any reply. <laughs> so I have a sneaking suspicion that this was setting some unrealistically high expectations so you could look at, uh, you know, uh, 1.8 million people going back to work and say, yeah, it's not, it's not as good as it should be. Look, you know what? We'll take positive momentum. Could it be better? Sure. A couple months ago, we had 4 million jobs created in a month. That's really great. We're not going to get that every month. You know, I, I will take this result. It's moving in the right direction. Um, yes, we still have a long ways to go, but, uh, you know, look, it's a nice sign that, uh, the recovery did not hit pause after a couple of months.
1: Should point out that the uh, overall unemployment rate is now ten point two percent. The expectation was ten point six. But Jim, I think you make an excellent point on the moving goalposts here. And depending on which party's in power, the goalposts can uh, either move closer or further away. So you know, back when the May job numbers were about to come out, everybody was expecting, at least the experts, oh, we're going to be right around twenty percent. Well, not only was it not twenty percent, but you know, like you said, we got millions of uh, jobs created, which surprised a lot of people. And so. Well, that expectation didn't happen. Uh, Well, now you have to be back to exactly where you were by the end of the year. Uh, So as long as you can keep moving the goalposts, you can make make the contention, I guess, that somebody's failing on the job.
0: Yeah. Now, by the way, let's point out, I'm sure that this administration would like to see as close to pre-pandemic levels as possible by November. Sure. (laughs) I I don't doubt that, but uh, I think that's fairly unrealistic. I think we're still going to have some jobs that have just not, you know, not come back. This is probably not a terrific era for entrepreneurship, with all of the uncertainty. But uh, look, we're you know so far we're climbing back, and you'd much rather have that than uh, than flatlining in more ways than one, so to speak. All right. Well, let's move on to
1: our bad martini now, Jim. And this is. A bad martini in multiple ways, really. Uh, The attorney general for the state of New York is a woman named Letitia James, and she has made no secret since being elected attorney general that she basically wants to destroy the National Rifle Association. And fortunately for her, and unfortunately for the National Rifle Association, the financial dealings of the national rifle association have given her a tremendous amount of ammunition. We talked about this last year when the organization had a big blow up at its annual convention, a uh, big split between the executive director, Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North, who had been the president North stepped down. Uh, then with all these financial issues and all this lavish spending, they really had to scale back on their staff. A lot of people got let go. They pretty much sat out, uh, last year's elections, and they were claiming that they were going to be a big player in the last few months of this year's campaign, but uh, we would have had to see to, to know for sure. But now James is trying to dissolve the NRA because of the fact that all of the member donations were mismanaged in such a gross way, and she went through and, and discussed all the ways that LaPierre and other executives, you know, went on safari, they... Uh, black car limo service to the tune of millions of dollars, uh, lavish spending on clothes and so forth. So not what members would want their money spent on. And so that is a legitimate investigation. But her desire to completely obliterate the NRA and force it to dissolve just shows that uh, she's being nakedly political here. She could have crippled it, but by going for the jugular, she's proven that it's just a partisan exercise.
0: Yeah, and, and when this news broke, you know, yesterday afternoon, I found myself in unusual disagreement with other pro-Second Amendment conservative blogger types. I guess it comes down to where you emphasize um, this is the story of a bad person going after another bad person and the idea that you have to pick one or you have to root for one side. Um, the way I start out the morning jolt, which I think is good perspective, is people may remember last year Alan West, former Republican congressman from Florida. He's currently the chairman, but I didn't miss this. He's now chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. Uh, he was on the NRA board for a bunch of years. Uh, he is a pro-Second Amendment guy. He is a down-the-line conservative. He is obviously, as I mentioned, a board member. He is not eager to trash the National Rifle Association and its leadership. He looked at stuff that he had seen as a board member and he said that these, you know, I believe the term he used was appalling expenditures, things that could not be justified as a wise use of of money that was coming into the organization and that bring LaPierre had to go. Now, maybe you love Alan West, maybe you don't. But because this is such an admission against interest, I think that if Alan West saw something that bothered him, there's something really there, that this can't just be an innocent misunderstanding or something like that. And in Letitia James's lawsuit, she lays out a lot of examples of expenditures that just look ridiculous. That, yes, a lot of organizations give perks to their top executives. Yes, there's a lot of, you know, claiming of business deductions and business expenses that might be more for personal enjoyment. You don't generally, but this was just on a scale that could not be excused, could not be waved, hand-waved away. Um, that somebody had to be held accountable for. And people who listen may remember, you're back at the National Rifle Association's annual meeting in Indianapolis last year. A bunch of this stuff came out. Oliver Stone resigned. Oliver Stone made accusations of Wayne LaPierre. Wayne LaPierre made his own accusations against Oliver North. This did not appear to be one bad apple. And one of the things people were speculating about one year ago was at some point was the New York State Attorney General who had elected to office calling the, the NRA a terrorist group had made no, you know, there was no lack of clarity about her unrelenting animosity towards the organization. What was she going to do about it? And because the NNRA was incorporated in New York, she had authority to dig into all this stuff. Well, here we are. Now, is this a genuine uh, effort by the New York Attorney General to get to the bottom of some unethical behavior? Possibly, but let's also note that she could have, and, you know, I presumably still should if the evidence is there, bring criminal charges against Wayne LaPierre and others for fraud. She didn't do that. She went after the charter of the organization and wants to force it to dissolve. And she happens to be doing this three months before Election Day in a highly contested election. She is a Democrat. She is an openly very partisan Democrat in the state's chief law enforcement officer role. Um, She is, here's the thing, in a better world, Letitia James would have taken all these stories of people claiming that the NRA was wasting members' money and spending money on themselves And have said to somebody who was not, you know, who did not have her reputation, who had not had any public view on the National Rifle Association, somebody who was as reliable, basically, the New York's level of like somebody like uh, John Durham, right? The guy who's investigating the, uh, uh, what, you know, how the Russiagate uh, investigation began. You want somebody who's purer than Caesar's wife, and you go out there and you give that person and you say, look, I think there's something stinks here but I'm the wrong person to lead this because I've already got a record of being against this. If I bring this case against the National Rifle Association, they will argue in court that I'm doing this as a partisan vendetta and they may very well convince a judge or jury of this. And I think the NRA could win on this test. They may not. There may, she may have just assembled so much evidence of this that the uh, lawsuit will be successful. But we are in a situation where what really just seems to be genuinely troubling allegations of mismanagement and self-dealing and things like that at the National Rifle Association are being investigated by just about the worst person in the country to do it because of her past clear animosity towards the organization and the inevitable accusations, as the NRA has already started arguing, that this is some sort of vendetta against them and it's all politics and there's, you know, there's no legitimate scandal here. And I think based on what we've seen and from other NRA board members, I think there is something that stinks here. Although, again, if you're going to do it, do it over criminal, go the criminal route, don't try to shut down the entire organization.
1: Jim, I don't know if you want to make this part of the conversation or retake this, but you called Oliver North Oliver
0: Stone a couple of times when you were. Let's keep this all in there and observe. (laughs) Dear listeners, Oliver Stone and Oliver North are not the same person. Also, Oliver Twist is an entirely separate third person. I wonder if there's some
1: sort of uh, mental Freudian slip there. I mean, there really hasn't been an Oliver Stone movie about Iran. Conspiracy.
0: you got to ask yourself, Greg, who benefits? So.
1: John Poindexter, Bud McFarland. No, just kidding. I ran Contra. Good times. Uh, on to our crazy martini now, but let's stay with uh, hopelessly partisan New York elected officials and go over to the governor, Andrew Cuomo. He's still on his giant victory lap, but uh, maybe, Jim, he's got a slight point. Uh, Maybe the fact that so many people got infected in New York actually helped the area achieve some sort of herd immunity because Andrew Cuomo is now swimming against the tide, especially on the left when it comes to schools. WABC, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that schools in New York can reopen in the fall. He said that every school district in every region is reauthorized to reopen, and that means in-person instruction. He added that they will continue to monitor the infection rate leading up to the first day of school. He says, quote, it's just great news. We are probably in the best situation in the country right now. The infection rate in the state was at 1% on Friday with five deaths. So Jim, uh, your immediate take on Twitter, I think was the best one, so I'll let you announce it. (laughs) Quick,
0: everybody change positions. Look, the, the default setting of a lot of folks on the left has been, uh, and uh, Andrew Cuomo's a genius and the best leader, and he's so inspiring, yada, yada, yada. And also, obviously, Trump's the worst. Uh, DeVos is a maniac. Georgia is practicing human sacrifice. And by and large, folks on the left have said that schools should not reopen. Not uniformly, but generally, they're taking their cues from the teachers' unions who do not want in-person schooling to return. Uh, many parents, are very upset by that. Along comes Cuomo saying, well, actually, yeah, I think we can do this. Uh, I, you know, the state has to sign off on the school district's plan before they open. It's based on a low infection rate in the state's regions. You know, he did a little bit of, you know, if any state can do it, we can do it because we've been smart since day one. <clears throat> uh, uh, various nursing homes could not be reached to comment because everyone was dead. But th- having said that, if Cuomo has been emphasizing, we've got low positivity rates, our testing is terrific. Uh, cases are low, hospitalizations are low, daily death rate is low. Okay, then, if that really is an accurate assessment, and based on what we've seen, that does appear to be an accurate assessment. New York is not having problems. You may recall earlier in the week I talked about New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, some other parts of New England, but so far, yeah, you know, New York appears to be doing pretty good. Well, then why not open school? Why not at least tr- you know, do partially, as I said, you know, some districts are doing the two days a week alternating, trying to keep class sizes low. You know, I think a lot of parents would feel if you try it and there's now an God forbid there's an outbreak or, or there's, you know, the cases are going up in your community and you say, hey, we're going to have to stay home for the next two weeks and we'll see where things stand. Okay, you're, you know, you're, you're making your decision based on the evidence. You're, you're, we recognize this is a really unprecedented challenge and everybody's got a whole bunch of really difficult choices. But when they basically, ha- when people have the stance, as certain teachers unions have said, no in-class teaching until there's a vaccine. Well, now you're basically saying minimum end of this year, beginning of next year, nobody's going back in class. And oh, by the way, as we saw in that New York Times article, there are some teachers you can just say, well, we don't like doing you know online learning either, leaving the question, just what kind of teaching do you want to do? Because you've eliminated the two options that we have right now. Right. Um, it'd be interesting to see this. I, I, I assume this is Cuomo's genuine... Honest assessment. I, I think he did, wouldn't be doing this out of, you know, sheer political panic or anything. Although you do wonder, maybe he's heard from a lot of New York parents who are like, look, we need to get the kids back in school. Um, it'll be interesting. If anybody making a decision like this could kind of reverse the tides, something that's really unexpected like this might, you know, start the dominoes falling. We will see how things shake out. Right now, Greg, as we are taping, I'm just dying to see whether the overwhelming response is yes, okay, we should reopen the schools, the wise man Andrew Cuomo has spoken, or whether they throw Andrew Cuomo under the bus and say, oh, my God, this reckless governor, you know, he's practicing child sacrifice, I tell you. (laughs) Well, I think you put your finger on it before,
1: because I assume the way Andrew Cuomo is going to uh, parse this is going to be in his very condescending tone, say something like, only this is possible in New York because only we have taken the responsible approach. All these other states that have listened to President Trump are not in position to be as strong as New York. Greg, that's a, that's a scary good Andrew Cuomo impression. <laughs> have you been working on that? No, that was kind of off the top of my head. But that's, that's going to be the argument, right? Because Well done, but also stop it. That's a little creepy. <laughs> That's going to be his argument, right? That, that only yeah. we have got this right.
0: This isn't, this isn't the solution for everybody. Only because my state is the best led in the country can we do this. <laughs> if you don't believe me, ask CNN primetime.
1: <laughs> Never a day without a surprise here on the Three Martini Lunch. Andrew Cuomo calling for open schools. Uh, but he's also asking everybody to come back from the Hamptons. Maybe that's why. Uh, because he's, <laughs> he's willing to cook for you and pour your wine and everything. Good luck, New York. All right, Jim, have a good weekend. We'll see you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch and leave us a kind review with five stars, please. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great weekend and join us again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.